Hello and welcome to Hacked Off. In this episode, I will be begrudgingly speaking about the British Airways breach and the associated fine. I say that as uh, originally, although the team raised this as a possible subject for a podcast, I didn't really want to talk about it because I figured that the events that happened to Bier were a little bit old news. The breach happened last year. Yes, there was some controversy over the number of records stolen and things like that, but other than, yes, it's a big fine potentially, I didn't really know how much I could add to this topic. But as Mike Koss and I were talking in one of our earlier podcasts, we mentioned things like supply chain vulnerabilities and how companies can get caught out by the kinds of things that affected British hours. So I did a little bit more reading to try and see if the fixes, if the recommended steps to prevent these kinds of situations were well known or not. And it seems, at least in my experience and what I've read, that there's, there's quite a lot of misconceptions over what may have happened to British Airways during that breach and also what the recommended steps were. In part, this is because not a lot of details have been released to confirm some of the, the theories around what happened. So I'll talk uh, very briefly about what we do know, who's reported what, and hopefully talk a little bit about the remediation steps that you can take. If you're a company that's worrying about these kinds of breaches, then hopefully I can give you some advice there. And a lot of companies have been affected by these kinds of attacks in the past. They're not really new either. I've been testing for a long time now, and I've been reporting these kinds of vulnerabilities for a long time. But they were always a little bit controversial, and hopefully as I talk about the, the specifics of the vulnerability and how exploitation would work, people might understand why they were a little bit controversial or why they were often downplayed by companies, even though they can clearly have a significant impact. So if you're worried about the kinds of things that hit BA, I guess the sensible place to start is with the preamble. What's happened recently and, and what happened to start all of this? Well, British Airways suffered a breach last year, and as a result of that breach, the Information Commissioner's Office has disclosed an intention to fine the company a little bit over £183 million. A pretty huge figure when compared to older fines, certainly pre-GDPR, the new Data Protection Act coming in in May of 2018, allowing the ICO more power to, to bring bigger fines. Uh, the fine itself would be roughly 1.5% of global turnover for uh, beer. They do have the chance to um, uh, effectively uh, fire back and, and uh, appeal the intention to fine. The fine isn't going through as is. They can appeal it and, and we'll see what happens there. But yep, a huge fine potentially being thrown their way. But there's a lot of conflicting information about the breach, what happened, what that means for companies and those kinds of things. For example, I, I saw one, one organization stating that the breach um, saw people being diverted to a fraudulent site, which is not necessarily untrue. But if you think of that, if you were uh, going to a website to pay for a product, an e-commerce website, something like that, and the site redirected you, even if you weren't necessarily technically savvy enough to understand the implications of that, it's the kind of thing that you might notice. And with a number of records supposedly affected, I'd be very surprised if people didn't report that kind of thing. I'll talk about what it actually meant in terms of being diverted to a fraudulent site. 
But that's an idea of uh, this information being disclosed where if people are trying to read about this breach, it isn't necessarily clear what exactly happened. We also see things like the amount of records or the number of transactions that were affected uh, going up and down based on British Airways' um, investigation when they're, they're learning more about it. They're, they've adjusted those records. So let's start at the beginning. What was the first public uh, note of this breach taking place? It's probably uh, BA's message on the 6th of September. For example, they, they sent a tweet out on September 6th, 2018, stating, we are investigating the theft of customer data from our website and our mobile app as a matter of urgency. For more information, please click the following link. And there was a link to their website, which gave uh, some more information uh, about um, what may have happened in terms of the number of records and those kinds of things. The scale of the disclosure did change over time. Originally, it was marked as something like um, 380,000 records that were stolen. However, this was uh, later increased. The original tweet that uh, British Airways put out linked to a website that says the theft of customer data happened between August 21st and September 5th. In an interview with the BBC shortly afterwards on the 7th of September, British Airways noticed that 380,000 transactions were affected. But the stolen data did not include travel or password details. That was their uh, statement. It's an interesting thing to say, the stolen data does not include travel or password details because it, it did include payment card numbers, expiry dates, some uh, security codes from payment cards, those kinds of things. Interestingly, British Airways weren't the only organization to post out an update from this. So British Airways put out a notification to say that some customers had been affected, and Monzo, the bank, also pushed out a message that they had proactively cancelled affected customers' cards. They had about 1,300 customers affected by the BA breach, and so dispatched replacement cards and sent a notification or a, a statement to customers telling them what they'd done and, and why they'd done it. They also mentioned how long this took them. It took them about three hours to take the information that British Airways had given them, find the customers that were affected, and take that proactive action. So that's an interesting thing. But after British Airways uh, disclosed the, the vulnerability, they then adjusted the amount of transactions that were affected. So originally they said it was 380,000 records, and then they added to that an additional 185,000 transactions, which were believed to have been affected before the first disclosure. So they were saying these additional 185,000 transactions were affected between April and July of 2018. So that's the months prior to the original records. The 185,000 did include things like payment card numbers, expiry dates, CVVs. Not all of those records, but some of them at least. 77,000 of them included um, the security code from the back of payment cards. So you can see... Uh, the disclosure was a little bit messy, an initial number was given, and then that was increased. And then the initial number was decreased. So they said of the 380,000 records, it was actually only 244,000 records. So for anyone following this at the time, it could be quite confusing to work out, okay, actually how many people were affected by this? Uh, following through, 380,000, then reduced to 244,000, add 185,000, I get a total of around 429,000 transactions compromised. So a little bit messy. And I guess it's worth pointing out that breach notification can very often be messy. This isn't specific to British Airways. And it may be a side effect of the speed of disclosure. So British Airways uh, discovered 
the breach had taken place and then within a day began to notify people of, of the breach. That doesn't leave them very much time to work out specifically what happened. So to give an example of another organization that had similar problems with uh, changing the number of records affected, TalkTalk Talk back in 2015 because of their breach, their initial disclosure, which came out within 36 hours of them discovering the breach, set the number of uh, affected records at 3 million. They then later decreased that to 157,000, a much lower figure. So this is a thing to consider when companies are, are looking at disclosing breaches. You won't have all of the information available and that can make it complicated. People also worry about things like GDPR with GDPR or I guess more accurately the, the new Data Protection Act. The Data Protection Act of 2018 stating you must notify within 72 hours. Some people don't read all of the details of, of GDPR or the new Data Protection Act. It states that you need to inform the ICO within 72 hours. You don't necessarily need to inform the data subjects within that same time frame. I believe the wording they use is as soon as possible on their website. And notifying people too quickly before you have all of the information can be just as problematic as delaying a long time. So we have British Airways informing within a day, we have TalkTalk Talk informing within 36 hours. For an example of an organization taking much longer and how that uh, played out, Equifax is probably a good go-to example. Equifax had a major breach in 2017, of course. Uh, they took something like six weeks before they um, publicly notified of the breach. If you're interested in the full details of how that played out, we have a podcast previously uh, about the Equifax breach, but it's just important to, to notice those distinctions there between some companies notifying very quickly and other companies taking their time. But in this case, British Airways notified very quickly and then had to adjust that figure a couple of times to get, to get it accurate. But how did the breach occur? Well, the full details haven't been released yet, but people, of course, have been uh, looking at what might have taken place. Organizations like Risk IQ, for example, posting uh, a few different articles on what they think took place. They were one of the first, if not the first, to draw the uh, the link to the Magecart attacks. Magecart's hopefully fairly well known now, but it's believed that they may have been behind this breach. They're, they uh, opened. Risk IQ opened, stating that the nature of the disclosure led them to immediately suspect a specific attacker with a specific method, in part due to the way that the disclosure took place. So this is effectively with British Airways saying that the compromise was between two very specific dates and in fact giving to the minute accuracy. The compromise took place in their initial disclosure between 22.58 August 21st and 21.45 September 5th. So that's really quite accurate. And that was in part one of the things that led Risk IQ to suspecting Magecart. For those who aren't intimately familiar with Magecart as a, a threat actor, as an attacking group, one of the things that they do is modify script files to include code that allows them to exfiltrate payment data from the payment page. So again, another thing from the original disclosure that might have led you to suspect someone like Magecart. Because the disclosure said transactions were taken from the website but didn't indicate um, other systems being compromised. They didn't say the infrastructure was compromised or the database was compromised or anything like that. It was just these transactions were taken. So it's fairly sensible that an attacker like Magecart or Magecart themselves would have been able to modify one of the files on the British Airways website to include this 
malicious code. And that's what RiskIQ claimed in their original article. They said that British Airways used an old version of Modernizer, a JavaScript library. Um, the version they were using, if I remember correctly, was 2.62, released back in September 2012. And, and this did lead some people uh, down another rabbit hole of um, reasons behind the breach. I've seen a couple of people um, blaming the fact that the Modernizer library was outdated for the breach itself, saying that this library was out of date and therefore must have been vulnerable. And it may well have been. However, it's an important thing to point out that just because code's old doesn't make it vulnerable. If it was written to be vulnerable, then it will be vulnerable. But it's not like uh, food. It, it doesn't go off, right? But my understanding of what I've seen from this is that script was modified to include malicious code. It wasn't actually that that code itself was vulnerable. We don't yet know how it was modified. I'll talk a little bit about some other breaches that could give you an indicator of how that might have taken place. But it simply hasn't been released for the British Airways attack, so we don't know. However, that file appears to have been modified. It was appended with a script that serializes the payment form contents and sends it to baways.com. Baways.com. A site which sounds very similar to British Airways and like it might be affiliated with British Airways, but it was a site that was not under their control. So the attackers took the data out of the payment page, sent it to a site that they controlled, and that allowed them access to the um, contents. I've also seen um, other people refer to this as a cross-site scripting attack. For example, in a Wired article, uh, it stated, these details served as clues leading analysts at RiskIQ and elsewhere to suspect that the British Airways hackers likely used a cross-site scripting attack in which bad actors identified a poorly secure web page component and injected their own code into it to alter a victim site's behavior. Now, most of that's accurate, and you could, to some degree, consider this similar to a cross-site scripting attack. But a thing that I noticed, which is interesting, is the linked article, when they link and elsewhere it linked to a BBC article, the RiskIQ article and the BBC article, as far as I can see, don't use the phrase cross-site scripting or its short form XSS. It was simply that this script was modified. We don't yet know how. I also saw references to... The vulnerability in Modernizer is well known, and Beer had not updated it since 2012, long after problems were known to exist. Which, like I say, is true. The script was outdated, and it was outdated from 2012, but it doesn't appear to have been a vulnerability in that script itself. It was just that that file was modified. So is this the first time that we've seen this kind of attack? I don't mean cross-site scripting. I mean files on web servers being modified to include malicious content. No, it's not. Um, if you want to look at Magecart's other work, for example, more recently they compromised around 17,000 websites by modifying JavaScript files stored within S3 buckets. So whilst for the British Airways attack we don't know how they achieved that, we can see some of their other work being very similar, modifying scripts to include malicious content, and in that case they were doing it by modifying files within Amazon S3 buckets. Hopefully, S3 buckets being vulnerable is not new. Uh, I have talked about that previously on this podcast. We did a very short podcast about some cloud security vulnerabilities. And yeah, if you leave your storage area open to um, being written to by other people, then other people might write that. What else have we seen in terms of similar attacks? Was there anything earlier than this? 
Well, there's the Ticketmaster breach, which uh, hopefully people may have heard of, but there's another breach which is similar to this, which I see less people reference in relation to the British Airway attack. And this was a website breach where a different script was modified, and this uh, affected many, many websites, something like 4,000 websites. But interestingly, one of the sites that appears to have been affected back in February of 2018 was the Information Commissioner's own website. The short story to that breach, again, a third-party script was responsible. Um, the script was in included from a remote location. In this particular case, the one that affected the ICO's own website, the affected script was uh, Browse Allowed, which is a accessibility script. It effectively makes making a website more accessible to certain users easier. So it's a script that's there for a good reason. However, on the vendor's site, this script was modified, which meant that any website that included it was potentially compromised in the same way. Interestingly, for this breach, though, the file itself said, warning, do not copy or self-host this file, you will not be supported. So they were actively encouraging people to link back to their own site to import this resource, which turned out to lead to many websites being affected. This was a different attack to what affected British Airways. In the case of British Airways, it was the e-commerce section that was compromised, payment card details were stolen. For this breach that affected the ICO and many other sites, what actually happened was that the script was modified to include a cryptocurrency miner. It was included from CoinHive. It was designed to mine cryptocurrencies within a user's browser. So there is a distinction, and that is... I mean, other than the £183 million fine, that no personal data appears to have been compromised. The attack used the victim systems to generate cryptocurrencies, so wasted some of their CPU cycles, but, but didn't appear to steal personal data. But it's interesting that uh, the way that fines appear to work, where the, the fines are centred around the impact to the user, whether personal data is stolen and those kinds of things, if you haven't, as an organization, haven't done so already, you can go on the ICO's website and they have effectively a, a self-disclosure form where if you need to inform them of a data breach that's taken place, they'll ask you a few simple questions. And one of those questions is, has personal data been stolen? Or do you have a reason to believe personal data may have been stolen? And of course, in the case of breaches like this, although very, very similar, technically speaking, personal data wasn't stolen, so disclosure doesn't appear to be required. So that's a lot of different breaches that we're talking about here. Everyone's talking about the, the British Airways specifics because of this fine being so significant, 183 million, but they're not the only website to have been compromised. I mentioned earlier, Magecart hang 17,000 sites. This um, cryptocurrency attack back in February 2018 hitting 4,000 sites, something like that. This isn't new. Right at the beginning, I mentioned that we've been disclosing vulnerabilities of this nature in penetration test reports for a long time, but sometimes it's controversial. So let me just add why that might be. And in fact, in this case, the, the browse allowed vulnerability or the browse allowed script being compromised is more directly relevant. Um, very often, as a penetration tester, we would report where third-party JavaScript is included into a website where that JavaScript isn't checked to see if its integrity is good. So this might be um, something like the Browse Loud situation where they're uh, importing it from a vendor website, or it might be um, something more risky like importing it directly from GitHub or something like that. 
Um, or it might be the more common one that we see, which is including JavaScript from a CDN, a content delivery network. Now, doing that isn't necessarily inherently bad. Certainly for CDNs, there's lots of benefits to them. The shortest, sweetest uh, benefit being just performance increase. It saves the user downloading that script every time if it's coming from a CDN. And also CDNs can be geographically distributed so that they're close to the user, those kinds of things. CDNs are good. The problem being where those scripts are included without integrity checking. When we've previously disclosed this to companies, very often they've kind of downplayed these vulnerabilities. We'll say something along the lines of, this could potentially be a high-impact vulnerability. As you can see through the British Airways breach, if you can include code or include dynamic scripts within a user's view of a website, you can do some pretty cool things, like stealing payment card details or mining cryptocurrencies. So it's high impact, potentially, but people very often discount it or downplay it based on the likelihood. If you say something like, oh, you're loading this resource from a content delivery network, that might be uh, possibly a security issue. They'll say, yeah, but what's the likelihood of this third party being breached? What's the likelihood of the CDN being breached? And of course, as a pen tester, it's difficult to answer those, uh, those questions, certainly if we haven't assessed those organizations. So how can you as an organization who's loading scripts from external resources, be it analytics, be it marketing, or be it accessibility scripts, if you need to include those, how can you do it safely? Well, there's a couple of different ways. I will just point out that uh, if you need to caveat, um, you'll see a lot of security professionals commenting on the uh, British Airways breach saying that you should look at your attack surface. You should look at things like your payment pages. And if you are including third-party scripts in those payment pages that aren't absolutely necessary, you should remove them. In fact, in fairness, Mike Koss and I said that in our last uh, podcast, we were talking about reducing the attack surface if it's not that important, getting rid of it. There is a counterpoint here, of course. The marketing department want to be able to gather user analytics. The sales department want to be able to measure actual conversion and those kinds of things. If you can remove them, you should. But if you can't, there's a couple of things that you should check out. The first is content security policy, and the second is sub-resource integrity, or SRI. I'll, I'll talk about SRI first, just because it's possibly the most directly applicable, but definitely do check out both CSP and SRI. SRI, sub-resource integrity, is a method of um, effectively file integrity checking for these external resources that you load that's been around for a long time. Now, browser support doesn't happen overnight, of course, so I had a quick check and browser support for SRI was implemented in Edge in, from what I can see, April of 2018. So it's fairly new as a protection, but is uh, well supported now. SRI allows you, when you import an external resource, be it JavaScript or be it um, CSS, that's style sheets, um, to add to that include effectively a, a hash of the file contents, just an integrity check. So when the browser loads that external resource, it can check to see if it has changed. Now this, of course, in the case of the um, ICO breach, in the case of the British Airways breach, certainly might have been um, a good thing. It would have allowed the user agent, the web browser, to detect that file had changed and therefore reject that file. It's not a perfect solution, though. Um, if the option in that context is, 
If this file has been modified, reject it. Is there any situations in which the file may have been modified where it wasn't a security concern? Of course, it, it, it depends on how the vendor is distributing updates, but it, it might be that the vendor has just added an update, added a new feature, made a code change, something like that. And if they don't have good version control, where they're storing different versions in different files, and they just have, you know, an include JavaScript file, the browser will notice that change and therefore not include that file, which may protect you from the um, exploit the attacker is trying to run, but it'll remove that functionality. So it kind of depends on how important that functionality is. On one hand, it might make breaking changes to your website. If that script is required for website functionality, it might break. In the context of the uh, browser loud issue, um, it would presumably therefore remove accessibility features. So whilst you might be saved from the data breach, you might not be um, keeping up with those uh, accessibility requirements that you might have by regulation. So not perfect, but it, it, it would certainly protect you from uh, the changes. So sub-resource integrity has been around for a long time now. It's definitely something you should check out. Fairly easy to implement depending on how much JavaScript you're loading from how many different locations. But if you're loading lots from lots of places, maybe that's something you should look at too. The other protection mechanism that I mentioned was content security policy. Content security policy is something that I've been advocating for a long time. I think it's a really good protection, but I, I do admit it can be fairly difficult to implement, again, if you're loading lots of resources from lots of locations. Content security policy generally works uh, slightly differently to, to sub-resource integrity. Sub-resource integrity is where you're marking each file with a specific integrity hash to see if it's changed or not. For content security policy, you can be a little bit less specific than that. You can whitelist based on uh, sources, so based on the location those resources are coming from. So if an attacker tries to um, include code from a third party that you don't trust, that you're not using, it could possibly block that. So not necessarily as rigorous in that use case as SRI is, but could still be useful, definitely still something uh, worth checking out. For example, CSP, where it had whitelisted based on the source, would have stopped the CoinHive cryptocurrency generating script being included as part of that browse allowed attack. Again, not perfect, not necessarily the easiest thing to implement, but definitely something you should check out. If you're looking at content security policy and you want to implement it, want to play around with it without making breaking changes to your website, there is a report-only mode where the browser can tell your web server, it can send effectively a message to the web server to say, I would have blocked this if you were in blocking mode, but I am in report-only mode. So it's useful for that. You can um, test it for a while, see how it goes, and then implement it if it's working for you. So yeah, there's a, a lot to deconstruct from the British Airways hack. And I think if you're just wanting the cliff notes of what I've tried to talk about here, in short, it's that the attack that it seems took place against British Airways is not new. They are not the only people to have been affected by a breach of this nature. It also wasn't new at that time. We had seen something very similar months before this breach took place. Also, there are fixes available. You should check out SRI and CSP, but they're not necessarily easy to implement immediately. So yeah, something something worth investigating if the £183 million fine or intent to fine spooked your organization a little bit. Um, so yeah, just something that I wanted to talk a little bit about today. 
Something that I want to hear from you guys, though, is are you using Subresource Integrity and Content Security Policy? It's my experience talking to organizations that those are not yet widely implemented. If you are using it, though, what I want to hear from you is how easy was implementing it? Are you uh, falling on the same side that I am where actually you've, you've had problems in implementing it? It wasn't the easiest thing in the world. Um, if you are, let me know. It's, it's great to, to get that kind of feedback. Um, and also, if you've been reading about the British Airways breach, do you think there's any pertinent information that I've missed? I've talked about the possible attack vector used by the attackers. I've talked about other organizations that may have been affected by similar breaches. Is there something that you think critical from this that I haven't brought up? Let us know your opinions and, and your experiences uh, over social media. And thank you for listening.